Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm Marcus Johnson, Director of State Health Policy and Advocacy with Vitalist Health Foundation. And today we're back with our COVID-19 roundtable. It's almost fall. And much like the temperatures in Arizona, COVID-19 numbers are starting to stabilize, but they're still too high for comfort. It's been one month since we last spoke with our COVID-19 panelists. And in that time, we've experienced what seems to be a turn for the better. But will these improvements last? What effect will recent local and federal policies have on transmission? To discuss that and much, much more, let's dive in. We're back with our COVID-19 roundtable. This week, we have emergency medicine physician from ValleyWise Health, Dr. Kara Guerin. Kara, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Executive Director of ASU Biodesign Institute, Dr. Joshua LaBear. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And Executive Director of the Arizona Public Health Association, Mr. Will Humble. Will? I'm good, but I'm sick of the heat. It happens every September to me. I've had enough. But pumpkin flavorings are out, so that at least should make it feel better. (laughs) All right, Josh, we do this every month now. Where are we in terms of the trends of COVID-19 cases in Arizona? Are we getting better? Are we getting worse? Are we staying the same? You know, we've been tracking the numbers. We track them every day. And it does look like in terms of case numbers that the rise has slowed and in fact, even may be coming down. Today, for the first time, our seven-day trailing average has dropped compared to previous numbers and it's a seven-day trailing average. So the numbers of cases are coming down by that number. The caveat that we have to always remember is that these are reported cases. In Arizona, just like the rest of the country now, a lot of people can get access to testing at their local pharmacy and maybe doing testing at home and not actually getting tracked by our numbers. Now, the other thing to look at, therefore, is what's happening in the hospitals and what's happening in the ICUs. And there again, it does look like the numbers are at least stabilizing. The rate of rise in people showing up as inpatients is not going up. It's been pretty flat now for a week or two. And even in the ICUs now, the numbers are flattening there as well. So it does look like we're kind of either at a peak or maybe even a little bit past the peak in the state based on those sorts of numbers. The one place where you see a lot of activity still is in the emergency rooms. And there, I suspect that because a lot of the cases are shifting to a younger demographic, those people are getting their actual COVID care in the emergency room as opposed to as inpatients. And so that may be what's happening there. Kara, is that what you're seeing in your emergency room? Are you still seeing cases coming in? And if so, do you see any sort of shift toward a younger demographic? Yeah, we still see cases, multiple cases every day, and it is a younger demographic. We have a lot more children coming in, not all with COVID, but with other RSV and other kind of the normal viral stuff that kids pass around. Unfortunately, we do still see a good amount of patients that are 25 and up that could have been vaccinated and aren't. So it still continues. There are still are a lot of children, but the good thing is in general, the children do well but there's still a lot of adults coming in that do end up getting admitted. In the emergency department in general, it's a disaster, to be perfectly honest. It's really a mess. We've been talking about how COVID numbers are going up, but unfortunately, everything else is going up too. It's 
everything else is going on, the traumas, the heart attacks, the strokes. Some people have been putting off care still because they're scared of COVID. And now we are seeing the fallout on healthcare workers. There is simply not enough staff. Before we talked about, there was a survey that 20% of bedside nurses were thinking about quitting. And that is what we are seeing. There is not enough staff. There's not enough nurses, not enough techs. There's not enough of anything. I will tell you that at Valley Wise, they did a some sort of workforce labor activation. So they asked all non-clinical employees to put in time to help out in the needed areas and they get paid for it. So for instance, our CEO of Valley Wise came to the emergency department and was changing the bedding of beds, was helping move patients, was helping answer phones, very basic things that we do not have people for. And it's not just us. This is everywhere around the valley, and this is everywhere around the country. Things are taking much longer than they used to for COVID and non-COVID care. And it's very frustrating as a healthcare provider, and patients are very frustrated, and they don't seem to understand. I don't know how we're going to fix this. It's really interesting to think about because in prior episodes, we talked about the delayed care that people just weren't seeking, essentially. And now, probably, we're seeing COVID cases coming into the hospital, and we're seeing people reemerge with what would normally be just ER visits in normal times. And coupled that with resources that are available to hospitals are coming in in order to address COVID, but may not be coming in in order to address this increase in services that normally occur outside of COVID times. Yeah, I would say that there's no resources anywhere. I mean, for one weekend, we had multiple cardiac catheterization labs in the city closed. This is where you go when you have the big heart attack and you need to have a stent placed in your heart and multiple places because they didn't have staff. There's very specialized staff. There's times when you simply cannot get hemodialysis at places. Labor and delivery units simply say, like, unless you walk in, you can't come here. There was a labor and delivery unit that closed in New York because the staff were on strike about vaccines. I feel like this is kind of underreported, untalked about, but it's pretty bad. And I know that Governor Ducey announced the $60 million for additional 750 nurses, but only hospitals doing the monoclonal antibodies. So there's two things to that. The first one is, uh, and kind of with Biden's plan, do the monoclonal antibodies help? Maybe, but that is certainly not the solution. Um, That is a solution for a very small fraction of people, those who don't require hospital admission and are high risk. So, and that assumes that they want it because it's not a, it it takes at least two and a half hours to administer. It's it's not something that is without risk and without time investment. And And you have to catch them really early in the infection too. If you don't get them right away, then that doesn't matter. Yeah, there's a checklist and they say within the first 10 days, but to be honest, like if you're 10 days out, you're probably gonna be fine anyway. Right. If you have 750 nurses and you assume that 100 hospitals in Arizona get it, that's like 7.5 nurses per hospital. That again, drop in the bucket. I don't see how there's a solution to this. And the people that are working now are getting so tired and it's not just COVID. It's just, for instance, we're constantly short nurses. So They get called and say, hey, could you pull an extra shift? And they're getting extra money. But there's only so much you can do before everyone's tired. It's obviously still a a huge drain for our healthcare system. I'll play devil's advocate for a minute, though. The goal of this was to flatten the curve. We're doing that right now. The goal is to make sure that hospitals have capacity. They have capacity when you look at the numbers. The goal is to make sure that we're able to treat people that get COVID. We have treatments available to them. What's the problem? problem is COVID has killed morale. We have a huge amount of people that left healthcare. That's why we have all these openings. We have the capacity, but the capacity is straining everyone. 
So I always kind of think to myself, really, we have ICU beds because we're told every day there's no ICU beds and somehow we do come up with ICU beds. But that's not because we suddenly have extra nurses. It's because people die. It's because people get transferred out of the ICU. I feel like a lot of the numbers give us a false sense of security. And in Arizona, we can give the care we are now. We've seen what's happening in Idaho. We've seen what's happening in Kentucky. They're talking about rationing care. Right now, we're okay. But this is going to have long-term consequences on the healthcare workforce. And people are having their surgeries delayed and their yes. their treatments delayed, you yes. know, their quote unquote elective things, but that could be cancer surgery, that could be cardiac surgery. They will always find beds, but it's what what cost? Yeah, exactly. There are cases, I mean, in the emergency department, we have people that come in that have been waiting for these surgeries and they're like, can't you work me in? And I'm like, listen, I'd love to. And I'm sure the surgeons would love to, but we just don't have the capacity. So this is a good indication of what the treatment side of the equation looks like. What about the public health mitigation measures that have been implemented thus far? Will, you're keeping a finger on the pulse of various public health, non-pharmacological interventions that are going on out there. What's new in the past month in order to keep the fire from starting in the first place? There was a really interesting study that came out maybe about three weeks ago. It was about schools. It looked at what are the most effective strategies at slowing the spread of the virus in schools. Like with the goal, of course, being have as much in-person instruction happening as you can. Have as few kids out on quarantine and, and at home using workbooks instead of in the classroom. And this study dove into the details of how you can accomplish that different ways. And the number one return on investment intervention was, of course, universal masking in the classroom of everybody. And If everyone in the classroom is masked, it reduces the spread, estimated spread reduction is of 800%. So eight-fold reduction in viral spread if you have universal masking. Interestingly, the same study showed that if you have two HEPA filters running on high in a classroom all day and kids not in masks, that reduces the transmission of the virus 400%. So not as good as universal masking, but turns out that it seems as though better filtration results in slower transmission, even if the kids aren't wearing masks. Of course, if you combine the two, it's more than a thousand percent reduction, tenfold reduction if you've got masking and, and HEPA filtration. And so what we've seen in Arizona over the last month is that the, you know, schools opened in the very beginning of August, and now we're early, mid-September. So schools have been in session for a month, some of them five or six weeks even. And I know of a really big school district here in the Valley that initially did not use universal masking in the classroom, and they had hundreds of kids out on quarantine and sick and at home doing workbooks, and they're not doing virtual learning the same It's like they're doing the hybrid stuff anymore. There's lesson plans that go home with the kids that are on quarantine or sick, but they don't have the Zoom kind of thing like we had last year. And so this district got the board to vote for universal masking up until at least September 29th. I talked to the superintendent a couple weeks ago, and he said, we're really starting to see a decrease. He said, so even after one week, 
they found that it was really starting to bring in fewer cases. And by the way, they're doing a lot of pooled testing in these schools, too. So the testing is actually happening. And they have rapid tests in this district, too. And then by last Friday, it was down to 34 kids out on quarantine out of, I think, that district. When you add up all the staff and the kids, it's something like a 20,000-person school district. So dramatic results by just doing universal masking in the classroom. One of the things that is so interesting about the schools and why it's so important is, and Josh, you're seeing this in the data that you have posted up at Biodesign, is over the last month, a third of the cases are now kids under 20. That's a new part of this pandemic because it wasn't that way before. Everyone can agree with the goal of keeping kids in school. Every single person agrees with that. No one is disagreeing about that. question is how can you effectively do it? And it comes down to universal masking and or filtration or both. Testing, having those test resources in the school, which there's money for that, both the pooled testing, which is PCR, and the rapid antigen test, and then doing contact tracing so that you identify the kids that were unmasked within 15 minutes of a positive case so that you can get them out on quarantine at least until you can be assured that they're not infected, which means doing the rapid test at home or other testing with the parents. So for the districts that are doing those things, it's really working. So Josh mentioned that we are hopefully seeing a turn for the better. If not, we're at least at the what seems to be maybe the start of getting better. What do we attribute that to? That's really complicated. And people have raised this question in other places as well. One of the telling features, a lot of people say that these delta waves are like a two-month window. Sorry, what do you mean by the delta waves? Right now, we're in this massive wave of largely this delta variant-driven infections. Mm -hmm. If you look at India where they just went through this huge wave due to Delta. And they yes, they, they started doing immunization, but they probably didn't get more than 4% people immunized. And yes, there was some behavior modification in terms of mask wearing, but they really did not convince a lot of people to do it. And yet, if you look at the numbers, they were sort of self-limited. They went up, they had this huge peak, millions of people infected, and then it kind of came down. And so the question is, there's probably a lot of things going on. We have seen a kind of resurgence in interest in vaccination in Arizona with this wave. We'd love to see more of that, but we did see some of it. We are steadily, but you know, surely vaccinating more people. Some people, I would say, are wearing masks in certain situations. That might be helping a little bit. But then I think we're also just people are getting infected and they're developing natural immunity. And as people develop natural immunity, that becomes a barrier to spread of the virus. So I think all of those things combined are, are probably doing it. And, and I will little plug ASU is just now this week, we have organized to do a Sarah survey among our population, both our students and our staff. We're going to just try to get as many people to give blood and to look at what's the level of immunity as a sort of research project. And we're looking at a couple of things. We're looking at people who have strong antibodies against the spike protein, but not the nucleocapsid protein, presumably got vaccinated and people who have antibodies to both presumably have been infected. And we're also asking for their history and whether they've been vaccinated and when they were vaccinated. So we want to get a sense of how much susceptibility, and, and here I'm using the epidemiological term susceptibility of people who are completely naive to virus and or vaccine, is out there. As that number gets smaller, that may be contributing to why this thing is starting to turn the corner. Okay, Josh, gambling is now legal in the state of Arizona. (laughs) Where where are you placing your money? What percentage of Arizona do you guess 
are still susceptible. Completely naive. I would say 15% or lower at this point. Of adults. Of adults, yeah. So some people might hear that and say, okay, so we're getting better. We don't need to worry about this thing as much. Will, back to your point about we can all agree that one of the goals of moving forward is to keep kids in schools. What is our overarching goal right now? We've flattened the curve again and again, and now hopefully once again. But where are we going with this? What is our collective goal, either as a state or as a country? Or what should it be? I think the number one goal, at least right now, needs to be let's keep kids in in in-person learning. And that means using those basic strategies I just talked about. Increased filtration and ventilation, universal masking, on-site testing, and contact tracing so you identify the close contacts at high risk and remove them from at least temporarily so they don't cause a cascade. So with schools, I think let's give as many kids an opportunity for in-person learning as possible in a safe environment. For healthcare workers, like we talked about at the top of this podcast, and Kara, what do you, I mean, I don't know what the goal is for that. Honestly, I don't know what the goal is. Right now, we're just surviving. I think this has shown a lot of, not just in the healthcare system, but everywhere, as we've talked about, there's a lot of holes. There's a lot of room for improvement. The healthcare system has to change somehow, but I haven't figured out how. There's an article published recently in the Council on Foreign Relations, and it looked at various countries and it compared the death rate by COVID versus each country's chronic disease burden. And the more chronic diseases that a country is burdened by, the higher the death rate from COVID. So we talk a lot about preparedness and response and recovery, but I'm also curious if we're missing another R in resiliency. And resiliency in the meaning that how can we also learn from this pandemic in order to make sure that we are better prepared as a nation for another pandemic, but not just for the infectious disease side of the house, but ensuring that we're investing in chronic disease prevention as well. And so I'm curious, Kara, when you talk about our hospitals and our healthcare workers are just trying to survive, how many of the patients that you're seeing now and previously with COVID, are you seeing some sort of multiple diagnosis with other chronic diseases. Does that ring true to you? And is that something that we should also be focused on is not just the infectious disease prevention, but also how can we do better as a nation in terms of chronic diseases? Yeah, I mean, basically chronic diseases, many of them are risk factors for doing poorly with COVID. So I think previous to the vaccine, those are a lot of the patients, not all, those are a lot of the patients who got sick. And unfortunately, a lot of the patients that did very poorly, you know, one of the 650,000 patients that died. It definitely contributed to it. I think that's a great point. I think this is a good example of something that's going to get glossed over because we're going to focus so much on the pandemic and the infectious portion of it rather than the risk factors. It's a huge part. I mean, the healthcare system has been trying to treat diabetes and heart disease and in some aspects doing a great job, in many aspects doing a very poor job. So I think that kind of talks to the healthcare system and to individuals that we have to get on top of chronic diseases. Another good example is drug overdose deaths. 
we've seen a huge increase in that more at the beginning of the pandemic. And then I feel like we're seeing a lot now as well. And that's another good example of the healthcare system that really silos things, but really drug overdose deaths right now are not in a silo. There's so many complicating factors that are contributing to that. It's, it's a lot more to it than just the infectious disease part. And it takes a lot of planning and money and motivation to get those all addressed. Will, do you see any of the dollars in the American Rescue Plan Act or the infrastructure bill that's being debated in Congress? Do you foresee those issue areas potentially helping to address some of this chronic disease discussion? Well, if you look at some of the details in the big one, the three and a half trillion dollar budget reconciliation package, there's a lot of elements in there that go towards the social determinants of health. And I'm not an expert in exactly what those are, but I know there's additional family type of supports and earned income tax credit and initiatives on more affordable housing to build out affordable housing. So there's that, but that's not the one that just passed. That's in the reconciliation package, or at least of the proposal that's being talked about in the House and Senate. Good start. You know, there's so many social determinants of health, which all lead to chronic medical problems. Let's get back to the infectious disease side of the house. One of the things that I've heard a couple of you mention is just the amount of confusion that's out there within the general public. I think each of us individually have probably experienced some degree of confusion. I'm sure each of us individually have had friends or family coming to us and asking us for insights on certain things. What's your sense of how confused the general public is right now, whether it be about vaccinations or booster shots or the durability of certain vaccines versus others? How do we navigate all of these various factors in a world where we seemingly have new news come out about this pandemic every single day? I think it's very difficult. And I think this is something we definitely have to talk about. I think everyone's frustrated with the changing news. But I heard someone kind of put it in a different perspective. If you go to your stockbroker, they're going to make recommendations on what to buy now. And that's for today. But next week, they might tell you to sell because for whatever reason, the stock price went up. You're not going to say to them that they're flip-flopping. They're just working off the newest information. So I think it's very frustrating, but I think it's also the way you look at it. It's not flip-flopping. It's addressing the newest information. I think that's a very good point. I mean, I think the coronavirus that we're dealing with today is very different from the coronavirus a year ago. We're talking about a whole different behavior of the virus and consequently recommendations change. And also the conditions on the ground have changed. There's a different fraction of the population that's vaccinated. There's a different fraction of the population that's already seen the virus. It lends itself to confusion when people don't understand that there's a nuance to this and things have changed. I also think it's something we've talked about before. And I know just talked a lot about in the media is kind of the misinformation. So yeah, things change, but you have to be aware of where you're getting your information from. Oh yeah at what time. So something that was said today may not have been true six months ago. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's just changed things that are just blatantly not true. (laughs) 
I work for the Arizona Public Health Association, and we went with the school board association and did a survey of 400 likely 2022 Arizona voters, plus or minus 4% margin of error. We asked a bunch of questions about do they support the governor's decisions on uh, starting September 29th, schools will not be able to require universal masking. We asked a bunch of questions like that. At the end of the survey, we asked them, and we already knew their party affiliation because we asked them that question early on in the survey. The question was, have you been vaccinated for COVID-19? And 93% of Arizona registered Democrats that are likely voters in 2022 are vaccinated, over 90%. Independent voters, or party not declared, was 82%. And for registered Republican likely voters in 2022, it was 52%. So there's this big political cloud over this that we have not talked about very much on this podcast. You ask me, what does that tell me? Well, it tells me if I was in my old job and I was going to spend money on public service announcements, that I'd focus on the demographics that are on the right and and figure out, do some focus group messaging and try to figure out what that group of people might find compelling. Try to start working and, and where do they get their information and see if there was any pressure points that you could get at to improve the vaccination rates on the right. Not sure there's even an answer to it. You talked about the confusion, and there's a huge political overtones to this. To that point, Will, I will go ahead and plug the DeBeaumont Foundation's work. They have done those focus groups, and they have invited in statewide and local leaders, Senator McCarthy, Chris Christie, and others, to hold focus groups with individuals who identify as registered Republicans, individuals who identified as having voted for Donald Trump for president and individuals who are vaccine hesitant, not vaccine resistant, but hesitant. And they asked them, will you take the vaccine? At the beginning of the focus group, they said no. After having spoken with local leaders, after having heard personal stories from either friends and family of theirs or personal stories of the people who were speaking to them, and after hearing from doctors medical professionals, the majority of the people in these focus groups said, you know what? Okay, I'll go get the vaccine. It's not an insurmountable thing. And at least what I took from that focus group is not that it has anything to do with party affiliation. The common thread is having trusted people and medical professions talk to individuals about the benefits of the vaccine on an individual and a community basis. I assume the fact that the FDA recently fully approved Pfizer's vaccine is likely behind some of the improvements that we've seen in recent history as well. Yeah. It's interesting that echoes a study that friends of mine informed me about in Kaiser. So Kaiser Permanente, which is they're kind of a combined insurer and a medical delivery group. They also did a poll of people who were hesitant and found out what convinced them. And very similar to what you said, the three top things were personal stories of people who've been vaccinated and who did not get ill. Just seeing the fact that people could get vaccinated and weren't getting sick from it. The second was a trusted person, a medical professional who gave them advice. And the third in their case, which is a little bit different from what you mentioned, was learning that there would be things they couldn't do if they didn't get vaccinated. So they couldn't fly somewhere, they couldn't travel somewhere, they couldn't attend a concert somewhere if they were prevented from doing certain things and they would get vaccinated just so that they could have access to those things. So very similar kinds of numbers. 
in the medical community. I try and talk to patients about it. I can tell you it's frustrating because there's kind of two different types of patients. There's someone that actually wants to hear about it and there's someone that just wants to argue. There's the thin line, but our emergency department just started offering the J&J vaccine last week, which was big deal. It's still working its way through getting out the bumps in the system, but uh, we were pretty excited. That's great. There's another intervention right on the horizon. The president announced a, a six-point plan. You can go to whitehouse.gov. It's on the homepage of the White House. There's a lot of different things that he's uh, proposing to do policy-wise and investment of money-wise, but mostly policy-wise. The most interesting one and perhaps the most meaningful in terms of getting more people vaccinated is a proposal that he's going to instruct OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to do an emergency rulemaking to require businesses that have more than 100 employees to either make sure their staff are vaccinated or get tested once a week. Kind of the old ASU plan. 80 million people in that category, large employers. And so it hasn't happened yet because OSHA needs to get the rule out. But that's an example. You can run as many PSAs as you want. You may not have nearly the impact that doing a policy change, like saying if you work for a big company, you got to get vaccinated or get tested once a week. So policies are often overlooked and, you know, people focus on money and this kind of stuff. That's an example of a good policy. The other one that I liked was that their Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services pays for a lot of people in nursing homes and other kinds of care facilities. One of the things that the president announced is that in order to receive money from Medicare and Medicaid, you're going to have to make sure that your staff is vaccinated. So that would be people in nursing homes. Interestingly, not assisted living because Medicare and Medicaid don't pay for assisted living, just skilled Mm -hmm. nursing. And we've had more cases in assisted living than skilled nursing, by the way, a lot more. It also helps individual healthcare systems were requiring their employees to get vaccinated. And at least in the Valley, there was a talk about all the healthcare workers who didn't want to get vaccinated moving to the places that didn't require it. But now everyone's going to have to require it. So right. a win there. Policies do make differences. I mean, it's funny. You look at smoking. You could talk to your face was blue about how bad smoking was. And some people just continue to smoke in public until policies were made. And then people just said, fine. I just won't smoke well, in the that, restaurant anymore because, well, you know. That's what we saw in Arizona with the Smoke Free Arizona Act, which the voters approved in 2006. We implemented that that next year, 2007. And that year was the biggest drop in smoking of all time. And it wasn't commercials that we were putting on. It's because right. people said, if I can't even smoke in a bar anymore, okay, I'm giving it up. Right. And so policy and now it's a thing of the past. No one argues. Right. No one walks into an, right. a bar or a restaurant and says, I demand the right to smoke here. It's water under the bridge. Everyone's forgotten about it. And that's just the way it is now. So what about the argument that some of the points in the president's recent plan could have a, a downside risk to them, could further entrench individuals who are hesitant to just say, you know what, I don't like people telling me what to do and I'm not going to get the vaccine. Do you give any credence to that? argument? I think that those people would have not done it anyway. And I think what the policies will do is get the people who are in the middle to do it. And over time, you know, I've had this argument with a couple of anti-vaxxers and they keep saying how terrible the vaccines are. And I keep saying, call your local hospital and ask how many people are inpatients due to vaccine complications. 
Find out how many people are actually hospitalized that and then find out how many people are actually hospitalized due to COVID-19. It's right there. The evidence our, is pretty clear. Our chief medical officer sends out an email every day with the number of COVID patients with COVID, ICU, ventilators, uh, as well as available materials like gowns and gloves. And the amount of people that are unvaccinated for COVID admitted to the hospital for COVID is always between 94 and 100%, meaning 94 yeah. to 100% of the patients admitted for COVID are unvaccinated. I mean, we are going to see, just as they have in other places, that as more and more people get vaccinated, that the number of people who are hospitalized are going to be vaccinated. We're going to see that. We need to be careful to not oversell this and to be, you know, make it clear because there have been issues raised about places like Israel where there's a very high vaccination rate, and yet there are also people who are vaccinated in the hospital. But that is to be expected, They're mathematically to be expected. If you take it to the extreme, a country that's 100% vaccinated, the only cases you'll see in the hospital are people who are vaccinated. That's just, just that simple. It gets exacerbated in, in some places because the large fraction of the population that's not vaccinated are the young people who are much less likely to go to the hospital. And so you end up with this, this thing that's been mathematically referred to as Simpson's paradox, where, where it looks like there's this trend towards people who are vaccinated going to the hospital, but that's not really true. It's just that people who are older are much more likely to go to the hospital, period. And they are also the same population that's nearly completely vaccinated. So, But there's still a much higher likelihood of ending up in the hospital if you're not vaccinated than if you are. Yeah, as a lot of healthcare workers are reaching month nine, month 10 after vaccination, yeah. and we've seen a, a number of healthcare workers get COVID, but none that I know personally that have had to be admitted. Right. Yeah, they feel poorly and they have to call off of work, but right. two weeks, three weeks later, they're back, back like new. Right. So we talked about confusion. We talked about the fact that the disease burden is shifting toward a younger population right now. Will, you mentioned policies and the efficacy, the effectiveness of policies. Where are we in Arizona in terms of schools' ability to create vaccine and or mask mandates? There seems to be a number of court cases that are pending and a number of different deadlines. So can you help us set this straight? Yeah, I'll just refresh by saying everyone agrees, at least I think everyone agrees that the goal should be to have kids have as much in-person learning as possible. To do that, there's a few strategies. Testing on site, contact tracing for the positive cases that you find, universal masking in the classroom, augmented or substituted by filtration. But the number one strategy, the highest return on investment is universal masking of the kids and staff. There are many school districts that want to do that and have been doing it, but the governor signed a bill as part of the budget that the legislature passed that forbids school districts from using universal masking strategies as a requirement. That law kicks into effect on September 29th. So schools have until the 29th to be able to use universal masking as a strategy to keep kids in the classroom that's going to end on the 29th. So thankfully, the Arizona School Board Association, along with the Children's Action Alliance and some other stakeholders have sued the governor and said, we believe that that law is unconstitutional. Now we're going to get a little bit wonky. And that is that our state constitution in Arizona says every bill needs to be of a single subject. And that subject needs to be in the title of the bill. 
what the legislature did is through the kitchen sink at the budget bills and put policy provisions that they couldn't get through committee and stuff into the final budget bill. And now you've got a Christmas tree type of budget with all the ornaments hanging on it. And it violates, clearly, I think, the state constitution's requirement of a single subject, which the single subject being, in this case, funding of K-12 schools. And that's where they hung the ornament, which is no masking requirements in school. Between now and the 29th, the justice system, that the third branch of government is going to settle this for us. They're either going to give a preliminary injunction or a temporary restraining order and tell schools they can continue to allow masking until the case is finished out, or they're not going to do the preliminary injunction or, or TRO. And then schools are going to have to stop requiring masking in the classroom and just strongly encourage it or decide to just flat out break the law. And if you break the law, everyone, the first question you ask is, well, what's the penalty? Well, the legislature and the governor didn't put a penalty in. It's like having a speed limit, but with no fines. If the school district decides not to obey the law, it's not clear what actually happened to them. There wasn't some threat to withhold funding or something like that? Not in the bill. Now, the governor has thumped his chest and said, we're going to do certain things like, you know, the schools that are requiring masks don't qualify for extra grant funding. He already did that by executive order. And so he's done the little levers that he can, that he has control over. But the bill in and of itself doesn't have a punishment in there. And President Biden's six point plan also promises that any schools and school districts who lose out on funding based off of a governor's local policies will be refunded those dollars by the federal government. As a mother, this whole thing is terrifying and frustrating. I have had personal experience with trying to lobby people to require masks in schools and for various reasons, people who don't support masks and because of the threats of Governor Ducey of losing money. It's a very frustrating process. My daughter wears a mask every single day. Many of her classmates do not. I just wish we could do what's best for everyone. It's really frustrating as a healthcare worker to see people just not follow the recommendations of all the medical professional groups and make up their own rules and not protect the other people. We're a society. We're supposed to help each other out. And then you constantly get phone calls from your child's daycare or school saying your child's class has been exposed. Please quarantine them for 10 (laughs) days. Yeah. And yeah, and as a, as a parent, you're like, Okay, now, um, all right, let's see what we're going to do for the next 10 days, guys. Crystal ball time. Where will we be in 30 days? And how will this winter compare to last winter? Josh? I'm going to be the optimist. I'm going to say that in 30 days, we're going to be considerably lower in case counts and Hospitals were clearing up a little bit of a limb here. I'm following the model of what happened in India, although I have to admit that in the UK, that wasn't the case. But I'm going to say it's going to be better. And I'm going to say that it's going to be a calm winter for a while. But I am concerned that as long as the planet continues to have high COVID numbers, the risk of another variant like a Delta is still out there. So I'm hopeful. Uh, But for now, I'm going to say it's going to be better in 30 days. Will, winter is coming. 
How are we going to look in 30 days? I couldn't what does this have, winter look I, like? Honestly, I couldn't have said it any better. I totally agree. I think we're going to see a steady decline in the cases both among kids and adults. We're going to start to see some relief in the hospitals in terms of the number of COVID patients that are there. I'm certain, actually, that we're not going to see a winter like we saw last year, December, January, February, that kind of carnage. There was so little vaccine in the community at that point. But we were with the alpha variant at that point, too. The big threat, the big existential threat is that most of the rest of the world is still not getting vaccinated. I am a chronic pessimist um, because in emergency medicine, we always think about the worst things. So I'm going to go with Will and Josh and um, try and ride out this more optimistic ride. Having said that, it's time for everyone to get their flu vaccines now. Ah, that's a good point. Thank you. As we've seen with little, smaller kids, this RSV and all this other stuff going around, the last thing we need now is more influenza. So time to get your flu shot. I think technically probably September, October, but we're getting there. No, that's a good point. All right. Ending on a high note, COVID-19 is starting to diminish, but it's flu season, everybody. So go out and get your <laughs> flu shots. <Yep. laughs> good point. Well, that's all we have time for today. You heard it from our panelists. As comforting as it may be to know that things are getting better, it's still important to remember that better doesn't mean over. COVID-19 transmission remains high in every county in Arizona, and the disease burden is shifting toward our youth. Fortunately, we still have a toolbox of proven effective measures, medicinal and non-medicinal, that can be deployed to extinguish this fire. Partisanship aside, know this. Proper masks decrease the risk to you and those you care about. Smaller groups and classes prevent the spread of infectious disease. Regular testing can help us to see and slow the transmission. And even with the rise of the Delta variant, vaccinated populations are five times less likely to get COVID and more than 10 times less likely to be hospitalized or die from COVID. These are promising developments made possible by all of us doing what we can to keep ourselves and those around us safe, healthy, and well. The choices we make depend on the options we have. We have the tools to beat this thing. The options are on display. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.